before we actually dig into the text tonight, we'll be in Matthew chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and start turning there. But um, I want to make sure everybody in the room does know about uh, an event that has occurred in the life of our church. Um, David and Jessica Anderson, uh, a longtime couple here at Grace of Anne, uh, Sunday evening, um, their uh, youngest son, Everett, died. Uh, they laid him down in the crib, and a few hours later, they found him uh, dead. I, I actually want to read, uh, Chris Luke um, had sent an email out. Uh, he's been interacting uh, with David and Jessica quite a bit, along with some other staff members. And I want to read one paragraph out of uh, an email that, that Chris sent around. Um, speaking of David and Jessica, he says, They are very sad. There aren't many words. However, even though they don't completely understand God and His ways, they are trusting and resting in the goodness of our Sovereign Lord who plans and purposes all things for His own glory and for His people's everlasting good. As difficult as this time must be, they really do believe that. I have heard it from their mouths over and again the last couple of days. Uh, tomorrow will be the funeral for Everett. Um, there'll be a visitation here at Grace of Anne, uh, I believe uh, at 10 o'clock until 1045, and then a funeral in the sanctuary um, at 11. So if your schedule allows, if you can, um, I would encourage you to attend that just to show our, our community, our church family, that we're behind and we support and we, uh, we love them. So let me take a moment and um, just pray for that family and for that funeral, okay? Let's pray. Father, we certainly are sad. Um, we are grieved at the loss uh, that David and, and Jessica are facing and the rest of their children. But Father, like them, we know that it is in Christ that we find a hope, that we find a comfort. Father, we know that you are a good God and that you had purposed from the beginning that Everett's life, even though it would be short, uh, it would be used to glorify you. We may not be able to see that now, but Father, we trust, that, that we, we trust in you and we find comfort and hope in that reality. Father, we certainly, as, as this church family, we just bring before you and at the foot of your cross uh, the Anderson family. Uh, we pray that your grace would continue to be evident in them, uh, and as they grieve and um, move through this funeral tomorrow, Use this body of believers, continue to use this body of believers to extend uh, your love and your grace to them. And Father, we praise you and we thank you that we are a people who have a hope in the midst of sadness and that is in Christ. Now, Spirit, we certainly ask as we direct our attention to your word that you would take your word, that you would encourage us, equip us, that you would renew our thinking and, Father, if necessary, that you would convict us of our sin. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, if you've got your Bible, uh, hopefully you've turned to Matthew chapter 9. And um, I want us to read the last few verses of Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. So you, you uh, follow along 
and I'll read it out loud for us. Matthew 9, starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now to understand what's going on here and and what this means for us, we need to do a couple things uh, to understand the context. If you would, flip back to Matthew chapter 4, and I want to read one verse to you, and I hope you'll see the similarity between what we just read in Matthew chapter 9. Look in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, you'll probably see the similarity. The language is almost identical from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Um, In essence, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 becomes an overview of the next five chapters uh, of Matthew. Jesus is doing two things. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is in essence an unpacking of what the gospel of the kingdom is all about. And then the second thing that we read in verse 23 of chapter 4 is, is that he is healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9 is recounting of several healings that Jesus does. So when we come to the uh, end of chapter 9, we're at a transition point. In essence, Matthew uh, reiterates this overview that he had identified in chapter 4, verse 23. But then he moves to the next section. He transitions us into the next subject matter that he's going to get into. And that is, the gospel has been, been proclaimed. Jesus is healing And now he's about to send out his disciples. In essence, Matthew moves into another section where we discover that God allows his people to participate in what he's doing. In essence, in his plan of redemption. We participate in God's plan of redemption. Let me try and illustrate a little bit of what I think that's all about. I have a niece. Her name is Cypress Rose. Um, She is about uh, 10 now. She lives in Washington State. Um, She's the oldest of my wife's uh, brother and his family out there. And Cypress has Down syndrome. Um, And so developmentally, she is delayed in figuring out and accomplishing certain things. A few years ago, uh, my wife's whole family had gathered together and we were camping um, in Washington State, kind of having a family reunion. And I noticed one morning that my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, everybody was up kind of around and uh, they were up. And Cypress wakes up and comes out and um, she begins, she's hungry 
and she's communicating that. And she begins the process of getting her own breakfast. And, and of course, uh, she was probably eight at the time, but developmentally delayed. So uh, in her process of finding breakfast, she's, she's spilling things. She's spilling milk. She's spilling cereal. She's uh, moving through a lot of things. And, and my first reaction was, uh, Raymond, aren't you going to help your kid? What are you doing here? And then I realized that my perspective was off because Raymond is a loving father and he knows that Cyprus has got to learn to do things and accomplish things. He understands that Cyprus must participate in learning to live out life. And so Raymond allows his daughter, even though in her doing certain things, she makes a mess and it takes a lot longer and she messes some things up. Raymond, as a loving father, knows that he must let Cyprus participate in life. In the same way, our Heavenly Father knows that we need to participate in His plan of redemption because it benefits us. And so this whole next section, chapter 10, is in essence the participation of God's people in the proclamation of the kingdom. Now, since God allows us and brings us into the participation of His plan of redemption, we need to make sure that we have the same mindset that Jesus does, that the concern Jesus has for the lost is the same concern we have for the lost. And so what I want us to do this evening is I want us to, in essence, look at and learn Jesus' concern for the lost from this passage so that we can evaluate and compare and where needed, we can adapt our concern for the lost to match Jesus' concern for the lost so that as we are participating in God's plan of redemption, we're doing it in a manner that matches Christ. There are, there are four things I want to draw your attention to out of this text we read tonight that will begin to help us realize and understand Jesus' concern for the lost. So as we move through these things, what I want us to do, what I challenge you to do, is begin to evaluate your own understanding, your own thinking, your own perspective toward the lost. Okay, the first thing I want you to see here is that Jesus' concern for the lost is, is seen in the fact that He sees the lost. Look at verse 36. It's quite plain in the text. He says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the first thing we read there is that Jesus notices and sees the crowds. Now, if you have any uh, understanding of Matthew and you're familiar with some of the passages there, we can quickly glean that this crowd he's talking about is going to encompass all sorts of people, um, all classes of people, from the poor to the rich, uh, men to women, uh, to, to women uh, children, adults, um, the educated, the uneducated, uh, the religious, the unreligious, 
um, uh, the uh, trained, the Pharisees, to the simple. All sorts of people were involved in this crowd. But you can also notice that he has a degree of understanding of this crowd. Um, he, he sees who they are, and it's described in the text that he saw that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep without a shepherd means nothing to me. Um, I don't think I've been within 100 yards of a sheep. But harassed and helpless, I can connect with that. Um, harassed is that idea, that concept of somebody continuing to attack and come at you, um, to needle you, to wear you down. The helpless, the word that I'm reading out of the ESV, the word that's translated helpless, technically is the concept and the idea of laying down. So it's almost a picture. Jesus sees the crowd and he understands what's going on with them. He understands that they are weary, that they are attacked again and again and again, so much to the point that they're ready to lay down. They are giving up. They are helpless. They are exhausted. Um, Jesus understands and he sees these people. He actually sees beyond simply the color of their skin or their dress or their language. He, he goes beyond the outward appearance and he sees this crowd and he's able to understand that they're harassed and helpless because he knows what sin has done to them. Sin has completely and absolutely corrupted and perverted all of humanity. It has tainted every single thing and entity and organization. It taints business. It taints education. It taints relationships. It perverts and twists and changes all of that. And if you think about what Satan is described as, uh, a lion roaming around seeking who he can devour, sin harasses people. It picks at them. It wears them down. It attacks them. So Jesus doesn't just see people. He sees people and he understands the state they're in. He understands that sin has perverted and twisted and tainted and ruined all aspects of what people go through. Um, Let me try and even illustrate this idea of sin harassing us. Um, I have a friend, and she actually happens to be not only a missionary herself, she resides in India, but um, she's the daughter of missionaries. She was actually born in India. She's um, North American uh, from her parents and all that and, and lived in the States for a while. So she is a missionary herself, and she is the daughter of missionaries. And yet, uh, recently, she wrote a blog post. Um, I actually stumbled upon it. Uh, She had written it some time back. But I want to read you a little bit of this, and I want you to hear her language, because she's articulating a harassed and helpless state over sin. And she's identifying how God brought her to some change in that. But listen to this. Most profound is the spiritual change that has rolled over me like sweet and living water. As I have extracted myself from ministry, she got to a point in life where she had to just back off what she was doing. While I intellectually understood the concept of grace since my childhood, I have never lived it. 
My life was a constant battleground of grace versus works. My core belief was that no matter what I did, I wasn't good enough. I know now that my efforts cannot save me. Rather, they have almost destroyed me. Do you hear that language? My efforts have almost destroyed me. She's, she's articulating a point where the Holy Spirit helped her understand grace and that she's safe and justified in Christ. But prior to that, she used the language destroyed, but I think you could almost put harassed and helpless there. Sin attacks us and wears us down. And so the question for us tonight is, do you see the crowds? Do you see the people that you drive past, that you live near, that you work around, that you speak with? Do you, do you see them? Or do you just potentially see a certain clothing, a certain car, a color of skin, um, a job? What, how do you see people around you? Are you able, like Jesus, to see past the presentation that we all make and see beyond and into the individuals, regardless of their presentation? Do you see that sin is tainted, that sin has ruined, that they are harassed and helpless? That's how Jesus sees people. Do we? Here's a little interesting thing for us to think about. How do we view the neighborhood and the people right around our own church? Do we perceive that they are harassed and helpless? Um, There apparently is a thing called a general social survey, and it's done every year. I want to read. This is a a government-sponsored thing. Some agency does this. I want to read one question that they ask in this general social survey. And this is the answer from 2008. Listen to this question. Would you say you have been born again or have had a born again experience? That is, a turning point in your life when you committed yourself to Christ. It's a pretty, it's a pretty theologically astute question. 37.4% of the people answered yes. 61.3% answered no. Do you see the people that you're around as being harassed and helpless? Six out of every ten people that you pass on Wolf River Boulevard as you drove here or drive tonight, according to the survey potentially, are lost. They are harassed and helpless. They are without hope in life. And they are facing an eternity separated from God. Do you see people as harassed and helpless? Jesus does. Do we as a congregation look out across this street at that high school and look at these neighborhoods and see, do we see people and are we aware of their state eternally? All right, secondly, um, Jesus' concern for the lost can be seen by the fact that he has compassion 
for them. Look, um, look again at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Now, this idea of compassion, we use that word all the time, but it's this deep internal angst. Uh, last year, Jerry Brasher and I traveled to Honduras. We were investigating some ministry partnerships. And one of the ministry partnerships uh, has to do with a woman named Lizette Cubillo, and um, she works with teenagers that have HIV in Honduras. And through her relationship with the director uh, of all the AIDS work that's done in the entire state of Honduras, she got a meeting with Jerry and I with this lady. It happened to be at a hospital that deals with AIDS patients. Well, we're there. We're talking with her. And um, we also take a tour of the hospital. And this is the place where people who have HIV that has uh, turned into full-blown AIDS, they basically come to die. And so here Jerry and I are, and we're on this wing of a hospital. Uh, it's the men's wing. And these men are in the hospital, and they're, 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 they're dying is what they're doing. I had this internal angst in me, and I knew that I could not speak Spanish in their language. But I knew that they would be told who I was. Yeah, he's some pastor from North America. And I thought, here I am. Part of me is terrified, but the other part of me is compelled that here I am to proclaim the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. And I knew, I knew that to show compassion to these men, I better touch them. And so I was compelled to walk over to each one of those men and not just tapped their shoulder, but I embraced their hands and held and gripped their hands. And I would say in English, not knowing if they would know it, God bless you. God bless you. Jesus had compassion for the crowds. He had a similar internal angst over the state of these men and women and the fact that they were lost and and potentially living an eternity in separation from God, my brother and my sister in Christ, do we have compassion for the six out of ten people that we just drove past coming here tonight because they are facing eternity separate from God? Are we moved in any way, shape, or form to compassion for the state of the men and women that are within a hundred yards of this building that at this current place are facing a, an eternity in hell? Do we, are we moved internally at all by the state of the people that we interact with every day? Jesus had compassion toward the lost. The reality is, if you're like me, I have a degree of callousness toward the lost. Here's, here, I think, is the question we need to ask ourselves. Where is this callousness coming from? Am I so busy that I don't even have time to ponder? Am I so trapped in the, um, the worldly labels that we put upon people 
that I don't go beyond them and see people and see them like Christ saw them, as harassed and helpless. Ultimately, it is a work of the Holy Spirit to begin to soften our hearts and change our view and develop in us a greater compassion for the lost. All right, thirdly, another thing that we see here um, in this text, Jesus' concern for the lost can be seen in the fact that he, he knows the potential that exists here. Let me, let, me, let me unpack that. Let me explain what I mean there. Look with me at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He changes the picture for his disciples. He'd just been talking about or identifying harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. And now all of a sudden he jumps and he has a whole other picture that he identifies. The picture is one of this harvest, this field that is ready for harvest, this, this field full of grain, and it's ripe and it's ready to be picked. And uh, he, he knows that there's, there's not enough laborers to get out there and pick it all. Jesus understands the potential for redemption. Jesus knows that God, from the very beginning when sin entered, all the way back in Genesis when sin entered, God has begun to orchestrate and, and uh, work out His plan of redemption. He's revealing it more and more. Um, and His plan of redemption had to do with Christ dying on a cross and then rising again. And Jesus understands that God is working out His plan of redemption. That, that God is in the process of redeeming, of buying back, of pulling out of hell, if you will, men and women, His people. And so Jesus knows and sees the crowds and sees the harassness and the helplessness and he understands what sin has done. But he also looks and sees a field ripe for harvest. He knows what God is doing and he sees the potential for redemption. My favorite movie is Shawshank Redemption. If you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. Um, Tim Robbins, I think, and... uh, Freeman, whatever his first name is, play in that. And I love that movie. Um, I love the name even. I just love anything with the term redemption in it. But um, it's basically set in a prison. And you've got a warden and you've got these guards. And they see the prisoners and they see criminals. And they treat them like criminals. They treat them harshly. They're abusive to them. Um, They use them for their own financial gain. But there's one prisoner, his name is Andy Dufresne, and he, in a former life, was a banker. And um, he was uh, accused and found guilty of murdering his wife, only he didn't. He actually was innocent in the prison. Well, Andy Dufresne sees the potential. He, He doesn't see criminals. He sees people. And Andy Dufresne brings about a redemption to Shawshank Prison. He, um, through his persistence, ends up opening up a library. 
and he tutors people and ends up helping them get their GED. He, he sees people and he sees what they could be. Jesus understands the plan that his father is bringing about of redemption. He understands that and he sees that. And so when Jesus looks out over this crowd, he sees a field ripe for harvest. He sees the potential for redemption in people. Now, for you and I, we do not know who God will save. We don't, that's not, that's not, not our business. That's God's business. But do we actually believe that there is power in the gospel? Do we actually believe that Jesus has died for the sins of many? Do we actually believe that the message that we have been tasked with, that our participation in the plan of redemption is to proclaim, do we actually believe that that message has power to make a difference in people's lives? Do we understand that the scripture, that the message, that the good news that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins will actually change things and redeem people and alter a culture. Do we really believe that? Jesus does. Because he looked out and he saw a, a harvest, a plentiful harvest. I want to challenge us to stop for a moment and think, do I really grasp and understand and believe that there is power in the gospel? That a proclamation of the good news will change things. Not an election, not a new tax system, not more freedom, not capitalism. None of that will change anything. I don't, in the grand scheme of eternity, I don't care who's in the presidential office. It's irrelevant. But the gospel? You want to change our city? We want to change our nation? The power's in the gospel, not in a political party, not in a more capitalistic system, not in a renewed tax code. That is irrelevant. The power is in the gospel. The gospel changes hearts. It changes people. It changes values. It changes a nation. It changes a city. Jesus understood that. Do we? Do we buy into that this gospel that we have been tasked to proclaim, to scream, to demonstrate, to live out has power in it? All right, lastly, Jesus is concerned for the lost by commanding us to pray. This to me is interesting. It's really kind of odd when you actually look at it. Um, look with me again in chapter 9. Look at uh, verse 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Verse 38, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, 
pray here is a command. In essence, he says, Jesus says, you must pray. So, so on one level, we immediately need to be obedient to, to that command of Jesus. We need to be people who pray. Now notice we pray to the Lord of the harvest, to God. And the request we have here is that he would send out more laborers. So in essence, if you will, we are laborers, the disciples, all those who are trusting Christ. We are farmhands and the owner, God, has sent us out into the field and we are commanded to go and ask him for more people to come into the field. So from one perspective, it almost seems a bit odd. Okay, wait a minute. The, the owner of the field, we are to go to the owner and say, hey, we need more people to harvest this thing. That almost implies that the owner is, one, unaware of what's going on in his field, or two, he's too busy doing something else and doesn't really care what's going on in his field. But that doesn't fit what we've just talked about from Jesus. Jesus sees the crowds, and He sees their state. He understands what sin has done to them. He's moved with compassion because of them, and He also understands the potential. He sees a harvest. So so the owner of the field does know, and He does care. Then why in the world is He asking us to pray for more laborers? Shouldn't we be praying maybe for, I don't know, um, the harvest or for the lost? Or It almost doesn't make sense. Well, the best explanation I found does not come out of my head. It comes from John Piper. Let me read this to you. It's beautiful. God has willed that His miraculous work of harvesting be preceded by prayer. He loves to bless the world. But even more, he loves to bless the world in answer to prayer. It is God's way before he does a great work to pour a spirit of supplication upon his people so that they plead for the work. Do you get that? Jesus commanded you to pray and to pray for more laborers for the field to bless you, to get you participating in His plan of redemption. Salvation is from God and for God and through God and to God. He doesn't really need us, but to benefit us for our own joy, for our own blessing, for our own benefit, He allows us to participate in His working out of the plan of redemption. Do you ever see it that way? He allows us to be a part of His work so that we experience the joy, the beauty, the excitement, the thrill, the blessing of seeing what He's up to come to fruition. I suspect, and I suspect this because I know it's in my own head and I figure I'm not that odd. I suspect that for most of North American evangelicalism, 
we've lost that role. We, we've lost the understanding of that role. On one end, we may think salvation is on us and we're responsible for it. And so we carry this burden and this weight that was never intended for us and is not ours. Our role is to proclaim God saves. On the other hand, we may be so distracted and caught up and uh, disillusioned and playing around with temporal things or sin or idols or you name it, you know what, that we've kind of lost our real purpose and meaning and reason. And here God is, the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, as a good and loving father, brings us into his work, his plan of redemption, and gives us a role, not because he can't carry the load himself, not because he needs our input, not because he needs our help, not because he can't quite figure it out and we need to figure out how to, how to sell the gospel better. None of that malarkey. God allows us to come alongside in his work, his plan of redemption, so that we have the privilege of experiencing the joy, the thrill, the excitement, the pleasure, the, the enthralling aspect of being involved in something that has eternal significance and purpose. So here's my challenge for us tonight. Certainly, I want to follow along with Jesus and say, you must pray. I must pray. Let us be a people that begin to pray and engage with our God and beg Him to send more laborers into the field. In essence, let us begin to pray that God will move us more and more and more. That our burden for these neighborhoods and these people that we drive past and work with and see, that our burden will increase, that we'll see them with eternal eyes, that we will have compassion for them and we'll begin to see the harvest the way Jesus does. So yes, pray, pray, pray. But the other challenge is, I want to challenge us to be a people that actually see and understand and have compassion for the lost. Pray that the Holy Spirit will take our callousness and move it down a few notches. And then then I also want to challenge us, let's begin as a congregation. Think about all the different activities that this church does that are geared toward and moved toward proclaiming the gospel in a lost and dying world. Landon's been sending emails out on GOL like crazy asking us to pray for that trip. Not just that they're safe, But there are kids on that trip that have never heard the gospel. Next week, I'll be teaching, for those of you who have junior high students at Fall Creek Falls, there will be kids on that trip that are outside of the kingdom of God. Are you praying for that trip? We've got teams going to Japan. We've got teams going to um, SOS Bingham. We've got teams going to Honduras and other countries. Are we praying? We've got a VBS that's about to happen here in this room, in these halls. This place becomes chaotically filled with children and messy beyond belief in just a few weeks. Are we praying? 
Are we praying for God to raise up laborers for that? Are we praying that children will come to know Christ? Are we even beginning to think, how can we, how can we find these families that come in our doors? Are you praying for your neighbor? Are we burdened in praying for the lost? I suspect in some ways, yes. But in other ways, we're not. Well, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may He change that in us. Father, we confess that so oftentimes we do not see crowds. We see a skin color or we see a a certain category or we see a certain car. Oh, Father, forgive us. So oftentimes we have disdain for the crowds rather than compassion. Father, I confess that so oftentimes I really have greater hope in some political system or some tax or something, Father, rather than the gospel. Oh, forgive us. Forgive us, Father, for that sin. And would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to move and raise up more laborers for the harvest right here out of this room? Would you burden us with a compassion that eats us up for the lost? And Father, would you give us the joy and the privilege and the the, the pleasure and the thrill of seeing men and women that are outside of the kingdom brought into the kingdom? Oh, Father, use us, please. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.